Jesuitical. I'm Eloise. I'm a producer who normally works behind the scenes on the podcast. But this week, all of the hosts are out of the office. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about the interview you're going to hear this week. This week, Olga and Ashley speak to Ruth Graham. She's a reporter at Slate who always reports on religion with sensitivity and nuance. Olga and Ashley talked to her about Theodore McCarrick, who she interviewed recently in Kansas, and much more. We'll be back to our regular programming when the hosts are back in the office on November 8th. But in the meantime, stay tuned and enjoy this interview. Joining us via Skype is Ruth Graham, a staff writer at Slate, where she covers religion, culture, and politics. Welcome to Jesuitical, Ruth. Thank you so much. So in early September, Slate published your interview with former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, who earlier this year was laicized by Pope Francis after sexual abuse allegations against him surfaced last year. So we wanted to ask you a few questions about how you reported your story. So this past summer, you visited Victoria, which is a small town in Kansas where which now has the dubious distinction of hosting former Cardinal McCarrick, who is the most notorious Catholic in the country right now. So how did the former Cardinal end up there? Um, He had been living in the D.C. area, um, kind of under the auspices of the Washington Archdiocese. And as this process was moving forward, um, it was last June that it sort of first broke. um, And he, he stepped down from public service at that point, and then it was sort of a rolling rolling punishments where he stepped down from the College of Cardinals after that. Um, There had been like a a credible finding of one of these instances of abuse, then other instances were being reported. Um, And at a certain point, really out of nowhere, without any kind of announcement, um, the archdiocese moved him far away to a tiny town in Kansas that he had no connection to. Um, It was, I think, just sort of a matter of the D.C. archdiocese it was Cardinal Worrell who has since stepped down himself, um, but just making some calls and just finding a place that would accept him. Um, because by this point, McCarrick had become so notorious um, that it, it was hard to find a place for him. So they moved him out there, you know, just in the dead of night with um, some advance notice to the um, residents of the friary. They were moving him to a little Capuchin friary in Victoria that we can talk more about. Um, but with no advance notice to the community of Victoria. Right, right. And you mentioned that, you know, it was told to journalists multiple times that he was not talking to anyone and that no one was welcome where he was staying. And you showed up and rang the doorbell. What happened? Yeah, it was on the last day. I was in town, I think, for five days. And I had done interviews there with the parish priest who was very kind to me. He lives in the friary with McCarrick, but he did say, well, we're not making him available for interviews and no, you know, you can't even come into the friary just to even get a sort of a limited tour. Cause I thought, oh, I just like to sort of see where he lives. Um, and he said no to that, but it was the last day there. And, you know, I come all this way. It's, it's a two and a half hour drive from the Wichita airport. Um, you know, it's really a trek. I think that's part of the reason that as far as I'm aware, no one else has gone out there to to knock on the door. And it just sort of seemed like I had to do it. I have to admit it took some kind of bolstering from my editor. I was like lurking behind the friary, slacking my editor, being like, <laughs> I, I, I know I have to do it, but Father John's going to be mad at me. And, you know, <laughs> um, not my finest moment, but he was yeah. like, yeah, you have to do it. You've come all this way. And I did. And, you know, it's this, it's a sort of 
unguarded. It's it's essentially a retirement home. Um, it's not a full medical facility, but it's a converted seminary. Um, and it's just sort of a small building next to the basilica. Um, and I knocked on the door and an older resident answered. And I said, can I talk to, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. I identified myself right away and said, I'm hoping to talk with Mr. McCarrick. He's now just Mr. McCarrick, not father or anything else. And this other gentleman just went to, he, he paged him on kind of an internal paging system. And a few minutes later, McCarrick came down the stairs. I mean, he has a reputation as a very social, you know, he always was a real kind of man about town. Um, that was a big part of his reputation. Um, and I might get the sense that that was something he enjoyed. And, I, you know, he hasn't been talking to anyone other than the men in this friary and the friends he communicates with on his phone. And so I think it probably was just a matter of not having spoken with anyone yeah. for a year and just being ready to talk. So yeah. So, can you, can so. you describe kind of like how, how you found him? Um, like, did he seem eager to talk? Was he defensive? Was he, yeah. Can you just kind of describe what struck you about his presence? Yeah, he, he wasn't defensive, but I would say his answers were short and curt is a little bit too strong, but he, he definitely wasn't eager to go on longer than he needed to in answering my questions. So, and he did seem physically, I mean, he was very stooped, but I had heard rumors in the town that he was in a wheelchair, that he was basically bedridden. And he, and he certainly wasn't, I mean, he, he was, he, he seemed healthy for an 89 year old man, I would say, and definitely mentally completely with it. And going back to the story that you originally thought you, or that you did report about how, how the town was reacting to having him living there, uh, you mentioned this this friary he's at. It's it's next to a public school, and there was, I think, a strong reaction because of that. But I was really struck by how the town kind of seemed to, a year later, be taking this in stride. Um, so could you talk a little bit about what the what the Capuchins who were hosting him thought about this? Why what their motivations were, and how the how the town handled it? So I talked with the provincial minister for the Capuchins in Denver. Um, he's now based down in, in San Antonio, I think, Christopher um, Popperback. You know, he talked about how St. Francis was known for embracing lepers. And at this point, you could think of McCarrick as a kind of leper. And, and I want to be very clear that he, there was no love lost and he was not, he did not express sympathy for anything that McCarrick had done. And he really took care to sort of emphasize victims and victims' voices and all of that and his his prayers for victims and his concern for victims. But he also just said, like, this is a way we were asked to do it, first of all, by the DC Archdiocese, and that this is, it's something that we can do. It's a service that we can perform. Um, McCarrick was ordered by Pope Francis to, you know, live a life of prayer and penance. And this friary is a very bare bones, not luxurious place, very remote, away from anyone McCarrick knows and loves. And short of being in prison, I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it sort of seems like this this is an appropriate place to perform prayer and penance. Of course, it doesn't seem like he's actually at the penance phase yet from what he told me, but I think that was part of the thinking. Yeah. So, so he didn't, he did not admit to anything new Correct. He did not. And I will say, you know, the phrases that he used to deny it seemed to me, um, you know, it left a lot of questions in my mind just about his his own mindset and the, 
kind of stories that he's had to tell himself about how it didn't happen. You know, it's, it's a lot about how he doesn't remember it. Um, uh, you know, it, it's sort of things along that line that seems sort of carefully crafted, maybe not even consciously, um, but just a sort of formal denials that didn't read to me as terribly full-throated. And Ruth, I I was very struck by your piece because, again, we mentioned this was the first time that we saw McCarrick speak publicly to anyone in the media. Have you gotten any other responses from Catholic readers or other church leaders? Um, One of McCarrick's named victims responded to the story just basically, you know, incredulous that (laughs) incredulous at the denial and reiterating his own account of abuse um, I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback, I think in part because a big part of this story is this Catholic community of Victoria. Um, it's this faithful town. It's a real bright spot in American Catholicism, I would say. It's a very robust parish. Um, they really trust and revere their parish priest. Actually, Olga, you asked about that earlier, and I didn't fully answer. Um, I think part of the reason that this has settled down so much in the last year is because their parish priest, Father John, you know, came to them as soon as it became public, spoke openly at both weekend masses and just said to people like, I will protect you. Here are the assurances we have in place. I'm accountable for this. And they, they trust him. Um, so it's a, it's a successful and thriving parish. And I think since that is also kind of foregrounded in the story, I think it didn't read as like a hit piece on all of American Catholicism, which it certainly was never going to be. Right. Um, And I think one of the things that has made this story especially interesting is that this is happening in the age of the Me Too movement, which has done a lot to highlight a lot of the stories of survivors of sexual assault. And one of the things, you know, a lot of stats show that a lot of these stories still go unreported today. And I, I, one of the criticisms that I've seen when reporting on such stories is that people think the focus should be on victims and not abusers themselves. Did you ever have any doubts about focusing on McCarrick's perspective at all? You know, I have to admit that I didn't. I mean, one reason is I'm not an activist. Um, I'm a journalist. And so it's, it, that's a different role. Um, that said, looking overall at coverage of the abuse crisis, I definitely believe in foregrounding even, you know, definitely elevating the voices of victims. But I, I really believe that that does not mean we stop asking questions uh, of, of abused, for, uh, of accused perpetrators. Um, and so I think that that's a main responsibility, especially in his case, since he has not admitted it, I think it's worth going back a year later and saying, you've had a year to think about this. Mm-hmm. Well, you've had decades to think about it probably, but um, certainly a year since uh, these accusations have become public. And so I wasn't going there to promote a particular sympathy to McCarrick, but to talk about the relationship between him and this town, and then also having the chance for him, if he wanted to say anything different, you know, give a new account of what had happened, I think that that's newsworthy and and worthwhile. So I don't like the idea that we would stop asking someone questions because the archdiocese kind of hid him away and make it made it harder to ask questions. I don't think that that means those questions aren't aren't worth asking. So now we want to 
pivot to your other really excellent religion reporting. You've covered the new culture of life uh, in young anti-abortion activists, how prenatal testing is changing the abortion debate, and how a Texas pastor who lost a daughter to gun violence stayed pro-guns, and so many more. And you talk to a lot of people at these extreme moments in their lives. What story do you think best represents this sensibility as a reporter? Oh, such a good question. Um, so I'm just attracted to stories where there's kind of a tension between a big kind of newsworthy failure and the everyday lives of believers sort of caught up in that, um, in, in, in those failures a lot of times. So one one that I did recently, um, a feature story about this evangelical best-selling book called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. Um which sort of all fell apart when the boy in the story renounced the story he had claimed, or at least the story was that he had claimed in this memoir um, to have visited heaven after, after an accident. Um, and it had this near death experience and he renounced it as a teenager and that his family sort of fell apart. And that became a story about Christian publishing and, you know, some of the incentives there to tell certain kinds of stories to Christian audiences, but also the particular incentives in his own family and what it means for a person to want to believe a story like that, to want to tell a story like that, um, to want to buy a story like that and the ways that we think about heaven and all those kinds of things. So those kind of tensions are much more interesting to me than just a story about um, kind of an obvious villain doing something villainous, I guess, Um, as important as those kinds of that kind of reporting is. It's a, it's a really incredibly reported piece. Um, And what, struck me about it when I when I read it was um, kind of like you're I think a lot of you you work for a secular media outlet obviously um, but I think a lot of journalists would kind of dismiss it out of hand as like like crazy evangelicals believing in crazy things um, but like the sensitivity that you 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 treat the story with and each of the characters in this or not characters people in the story is is really um, I find really wonderful. Um, and I'm wondering what in your own faith background might help you to approach stories in that way. Uh, thank you for saying that. Um, that's part of why I became a reporter, I think, is to try to, at least when I started out, there were so many, so not a lot of reporters who I thought were telling those stories in that way. I think there's a ton now. Actually, it's a, it's gotten so much better and it's a crowded market in a really good way. Um, I grew up in an evangelical community, going to evangelical churches, um, or in an evangelical church and evangelical grammar school and middle school. And I'm not an evangelical anymore. Oh, an evangelical college too. (laughs) I went to being college. Um, I, I'm not an evangelical anymore, but I'm also not like a ex-evangelical. I, I don't have, it was not like a traumatic leaving. I had a very happy childhood within evangelicalism in this, you know, intellectual community and a very loving community. Um, and religion was a real source of like comfort and also intellectual curiosity and richness to me as a, as a kid growing up. So um, I now, um, I go to an Episcopal church now every week. I'm an active, I'm actually not a member yet because I just started going to this particular church a few months ago, but yeah, I still, you know, I'm an active churchgoer and I, how I define myself is like kind of ever evolving and something I'm sort of wrestling with, but I, I'm still definitely am in that, that Christian community and it's, um, it's an important part of my life. 
So, like, the people in that story, would they have been familiar to you? Did they remind you of the kind of folks you grew up with? Yeah, in a way, that was much more um, of a sort of charismatic background. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a Presbyterian church, so the theology is not exactly the same. But certainly that way of... uh, Certainly by the time I got to college, that way of talking about the Holy Spirit, um, talking about kind of the uh, spiritual, yeah, spiritual matters was familiar to me by by the time I got to college. I didn't really think about the Holy Spirit at all until I got to college and met Baptists and Charismatics. And I was like, oh, there's a whole other way of like um, thinking about this stuff and and kind of interpreting the world. It was very actually new, a little bit shocking to me at that time. <laughs> you also reported a story about new and progressive anti-abortion activists back in 2016. And has this picture changed since the since the election of Donald Trump? I think a lot of pro-life activists in that space are in a similar space to like never Trump Republicans, where they've a little bit been shoved to the wayside right now, I think, in terms of the public conversation. Um, On the other hand, the anti-abortion side is really triumphing now. If you look at state legislation, I mean, there's a lot going right right now. And certainly there's a lot of reasons to be happy. You know, if you're a anti-abortion activist right now, there's a lot of reasons, I think, to be happy with Trump's presidency. So you know, it's it's a very interesting time to be to be looking at that. And I, I think it has changed a bit. I remember reading that that story about the new culture of life back in 2016. And this was before Trump was elected. Um, and I was just really impressed to see an article that I'm not going to say put like a positive face on the on pro-life activism, because that's it, it wasn't exactly that. But as someone who works in Catholic media, looking at the secular media, you don't really see a pro-life activist covered in that way. Um, it actually like inspired American media to make a, a video about um, pro-life millennial women. Um, oh, nice. Uh, so thank you for that piece. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so I don't know. Are those Do those people just not matter in a Trump presidency? I wouldn't say that. I mean, I wanted to write that story in part because those women were closer to the kind of pro-life activists that I knew growing up. Um, and that, again, I felt, you know, weren't really represented um, in the mainstream media. Although I think they have been since then. Again, I think that is something that is is changing, like Elizabeth Diaz at the Times. And I think there's a lot of great reporting on that front right now. Um, I don't know if they don't. I don't know if they don't matter. Just rhetorically, yeah, it's just hard rhetorically under Trump to kind of make the sorts of arguments that to use, you know, to kind of use the language that they're using. But they're still out there, you know, they're still out there. And I think that that philosophy and like that approach will certainly still exist after Trump. It'll be interesting to see where that conversation goes. And Ruth, you've also talked about uh, how parenthood has made you think about religion differently. And I came across this tweet you have, um, and I'm paraphrasing that being asked by your child about the nature of the Trinity has made you think that you're going to have to go to seminary to get through parenthood. Um, So have any of your stories been inspired by questions your child has asked, but you couldn't answer? (laughs) Not yet. She's only four. (laughs) So and her questions are so like, rigidly theological, like for Slate, I'm not writing about, you know, the nature of the (laughs) Trinity or like how the ascension works or, you know, she wants to know like 
how high exactly, like how high was the mountain that Jesus was on when he went up to heaven? Like she's very interested it's in like, like a where is Aquinas. <laughs> I know. And I already with, you know, at least half the things I'm like, I don't know, because I don't even know myself. Um, it's, it's, it is something I, I, I believe that I will have to just give her more straightforward answers than I actually feel comfortable with myself. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, also just telling her often, I don't know, you know, or no one knows. Um, but there's a point where it's like, if you want your child to kind of know the fundamentals, you have to just sort of treat them as the straightforward truth and then complicate it as they grow up. At least that's what I'm, that's how I'm hoping it works out. (laughs) Awesome. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We've got one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone Catholic or not living or dead, who would it be and why? (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, I really wish I had a snappy answer to this. Um, <laughs> do you ask this to everyone? So I have to come up with a good we answer. We do. And that yes, is, that is true. <laughs> Maybe Marilyn Robinson is who I would pick. All right. And and who is she for, for our listeners uh, who don't a know? Novelist. She wrote a, a beautiful novel about faith and America and, and family and so much more called Gilead and a couple of other perfect novels. Um, she'd be a good candidate. All right. Great. St. Robinson. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we we love your reporting and look forward to reading more of it. Uh, where where can people find your work? On Slate.com. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ruth.